0: welcome to reframe and reset your career a career development podcast to help if you're looking for a job feeling stuck in your career looking to change your perspective or just rediscover your why i'm your host harsha Boralesa, and this podcast came about from my passion for neuroscience and psychology and their interaction with career and personal development in each episode I will be interviewing recognized experts and successful professionals and asking them about their career journey, their real-life experiences, and to share the insights and strategies that have helped their careers thrive. Implementing change is not easy and does take time, but I do hope that their stories will inspire you to take a fresh look at your career and assist you on your path to a more successful and fulfilling career. Here are some highlights of today's episode
1: any founder, any CEO, they have to be good communicators and they have to be good salespeople. There is this tendency to overvalue the tech and undervalue everything else. It's not only the key terms that you need, is you need to know why they matter. Every other word that was said, I didn't know what it was. And I was Googling tech terms, like under the table. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much for joining me today on episode 29 of the Reframe and Reset Your Career podcast. I'm delighted to welcome Sophia Matveeva. Welcome, Sophia.
1: Thank you so much, Harsha, and congratulations on uh, making an attempt at my last name. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually pretty good. It's, all, it's, almost, it's almost like the real Russian thing.
0: Excellent. Sophia is the founder of Tech for Non-Techies, an education company and consultancy. She has contributed to the FT, the Guardian, and Forbes on entrepreneurship and technology and hosts the top-rated Tech for Non-Techies podcast. She has also guest lectured at the University of Chicago, London Business School and Oxford University and led the Blackstone Techstars Accelerator at the University of Texas at El Paso. As a non-technical founder, she has co-created apps and algorithms that have been used by thousands, one app of the day by Mashable and was featured by Inc., the BBC and more. Sophia loves helping entrepreneurs and has advised Chicago Booth's New Venture Challenge, and Microsoft London College Fashion Incubator. She holds an MBA from Chicago Booth and a BSc in Politics from Bristol University. She speaks English, Russian, and French. Sophia also sits on the board of University of Chicago's alumni in the UK. I first met Sophia actually in real life at one of her tech for non-techies course just before the start of lockdown, as I had started designing an app So it's great to catch up with Sophia again. Welcome, Sophia. Well,
1: thank you so much, Harsha. I'm very, very excited to be here.
0: Brilliant. And we're actually recording this on the Friday before Valentine's. So wishing you a happy Valentine's in advance.
1: Thank you so much. I will be stuffing my face full of chocolate. I'm currently in France and the chocolate here is very good. So I'm definitely going to be enjoying that. And
0: normally I ask my guests to share a quote which resonates with them. But I wanted to try something different as it's a new year. Now, I'm a massive fan of the arts. So is there a performer, a song, a book or a film which you'd like to share? And this is not a test of coolness. So it doesn't have to be some obscure thing.
1: Well, there is. And also, you know, I'm going to choose one of the most famous books, literally of all time. So that I guess that shows you that I'm not even remotely cool, which is fine with me. Uh, so for me, it's actually The Odyssey by Homer. You know, it stood the test of time. I first read it when I was a student at the University of Chicago at undergrad, and I was 20. And I was taking this amazing class uh, on the history and theory of drama. And so, you know, the the ancient Greeks, they have contributed to to the history and theory of drama somewhat. So obviously we studied a lot of ancient Greek theatre. And ancient Greek stories. And so that's when I first read The Odyssey. And I remember being quite captivated by the story, but also by the, by the translation of the poetry. But what's interesting is that 10 years later, so when I was 30, I was living in Delhi, which was, you know, a surprise, that was a pivot, but I, I happened to be living in Delhi. That's when I decided to take a course, I think, on, ancient, on myth from Princeton University on Coursera. And The Odyssey came up again. I thought, well, I hadn't read it for 10 years. I kind of know the story, but better read it again. And Harsha, I started reading it and I saw things in that story that my 20-year-old self didn't see. And I found that so fascinating because, you know, most of us know the story that, you know, there's Odysseus, he's very far away, he needs to get back, he gets, you know, stuck on an island or the sexy witch on the way home, all of this kind of fun stuff. But actually, it's a bit like, you know, really, really good shows like The Simpsons. Kids can watch it, but adults can watch it, and both people can understand it and get something out of it, but it speaks on different levels, and I found that my, what my 20-year-old self got from it was different from what my 30-year-old self got from it, so I decided to make it a tradition. When I turn a new decade, I'm going to read it, so I'm 38 now, so I've got two years ago. well, actually, just a bit more than a year, until I'm going to read it again uh, when I turn 40. So I'm quite excited to see what my 40 year old self is going to to find in the book, which my 20 and 30 year old self didn't see.
0: Oh, I just love that choice because I I studied Latin at school and I'm a big classical civilization person. It's funny. I loved um, the Odyssey far more than the Iliad when I was younger, because it was that whole fantasy tale, the giants, the, the guys with the one eyes, obviously Cersei the witch, the sirens. But then um, I started moving over more to the Iliad in, in the sense that it's a very condensed tale. You're talking about the heroic code and the whole idea of you know Achilles, he knows he's going to, if he goes back to war, he knows he's going to die. And I think I just love that whole uh, sense of fate and the hero's code that they know that they will suffer eventually, but they have to get back into battle. Otherwise, they won't fulfill their heroic destiny. And I just love that contradiction and paradox. And I think life is full of these paradoxes that things aren't black and white. There's a lot of shades of gray. And I think when people try to go on extremes on either side, I think you're missing a lot in the middle. But yeah, I, I love your choice.
1: Thank you. Well, you know, what you're talking about is a room for nuance and I mean, wouldn't it life wouldn't life be easy in some ways if there wasn't a nuance because, you know, you just take an extreme position and you just sit there. But in, re- in reality, most people, you know, most of us, are. I would say, you know, humanity is good. Most people are good. But, you know, we've all made some dumb choices. We've all done some things that you know, we wish we hadn't. We've all sometimes blown off the handle when actually we were just too stressed, we were too tired, and somebody just, you know, Got in the way, and we ended up sending an email that we then think, Oh God, why did I do that? Most of us are good, but we've all done some things that we wish we hadn't done. And that's nuance. That's understanding that people are good, but people get tired, people get frightened, people get stressed. We have to allow for that, but also not so much that we're just like, Oh, whatever.
0: Yeah, I think sending that email at 12 o'clock at night is a bad idea. Wait till the next morning.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: (laughs) And, and taking it back to the beginning, um, why, why Bristol University to study politics? Uh, was it fun? And what was the pan- Panto Sock? I assume that's the Pantomime Society.
1: Oh, well, you know, I'll start with the Panto Sock. When people think Pantomime Society, I think they think, you know, those very sophisticated people in like the black outfits or the white gloves. No, this is British Panto, which basically means like you're the back end of a donkey making <laughs> jokes. It was that it it was basically like Christmas panto, but because it was done by students, uh, we'd actually rewritten the plays and we'd set them to music. And so I remember we had a our best performance was Aladdin, but we at the time Britain was invading Iraq, so we had actually we had instead of Ali Baba, we had Ali G, and it was kind of, we we changed it to say what we thought about the invasion of Iraq, but also to rap music with you know, the back ends of Donkeys. So it was one of those things that where it was very smart, but also it was very silly and quite lewd, which I think is like, you know, when you go to one of the top universities in the world, you know, you're intellectually capable, but also you're a student. Yeah. So you do something very, very smart, but also you have a bunch of dirty jokes, which is essentially what Pandu said was. And it was really fun. Bristol University, I had a really, really wonderful time there. And I split my degree between Bristol University and the University of Chicago. So I did my undergrad in both. In both, I was studying political science. To answer the question why is, I've always been interested in history. I'm from Moscow. Changes in history recently, you know, changes in recent history have been so obviously felt by the Russian population. You know, we had... The Civil War. So we had the Revolution in 1917, then we had the Civil War. Before that, we had the First World War, then the Second World War, which wiped out 20 million of the Soviet population, Stalin, and all of these things. And so everybody's family has been hugely impacted by historical and political upheaval. For me, not being interested in history and politics, it was kind of it was impossible. But what I grew really, really interested in was how. Politicians use the media to manage perception. And so first I was I became really interested in how, you know, European dictators were essentially managing perceptions. But then, you know, so I became a bit more aware of kind of business. I was thinking, well, actually, you know, brands and companies are using the same tactics, but instead of let's all go to war, they're saying, you know, buy my soap. I've always had this interest of what lies between the truth and the perception how do perceptions get created how do they get managed and how do we how do we discern between what is actually happening and what is the truth versus what versus what somebody wants us to believe that's really some that is what i was really interested in when i was at the university of chicago and at bristol
0: No, I love that point about sort of, you know, there are a number of really interesting things that you say there. Messaging, say with um, a startup or an app, you're trying to get a particular message out there and say, this is what, you know, basically cut through all the other apps and technology out there and say, look, come and use my product. So what is that USP, which, um, why would somebody uh, invest in their time? in in your product And, and also the whole idea of messaging and perception and creating this message because I think you know also in um in life how do you perceive certain situations I mean you could go into work on a Monday morning and your boss isn't very nice to you is that because he's had a bad day a bad weekend or is it that he's just not he doesn't like you so, and, and then you, you get triggered and your amygdala goes and you start getting into f- fight or flight mode. And I think that's, it's, it's amazing how all these things are interlinked. How do you communicate neuroscience, psychology? And I think the really interesting thing I think about the world going forward is that if you stay in your silo and you stay in your lane, then actually you're not going to get the full value of what you do. But if you try and combine these different things, then actually you can create something really um, amazing and, and meaningful. Um, what, what do you think, Sophia?
1: Well, you know, what you said about how we get triggered by our bosses, and I've definitely been in that situation, and you know, I now run a company, so I guess my bosses are my clients. So I still, you know, there are some emails when I'm like, okay, Like when clients write to me, I'm like, that email is the one that gets open. But everything, like everybody else can wait. So clients, if you're listening to this, you are my priority. Um, (laughs) I also do, like one of the things I guess I've learned because I've had so much coaching in life coaching, business coaching, the whole thing. And it really does, it really does work. So for the people who are thinking, should I get a life coach? If you get a good life coach, honestly, it will pay off. Okay, imagine you're in this situation, you come to work, your boss is mean to you, and you start having kind of a normal reaction, you start panicking. But what can really help is if you think, well, okay, well, what is actually the worst case scenario? If the worst case scenario is that literally get fired today, is that actually that bad? In the space and the economy where we are today, the labour market is very tight. Companies are fighting over employees. Companies want to actually invest in employees, like now it's employees that really have the right. And so actually, if you go to work and your boss is mean to you, and the worst case scenario, you get fired, you might end up having three employers fighting over you and just like throwing goodies at you. And, you know, so for example, at we we have a membership. And what I always say to people, see if your employer can pay for it. Because right now, and this isn't something that was happening until fairly recently, but right now, employers have taken on the idea of continuous learning. And also employers now really want to work with employees. So I think with that whole thing of our bosses mean to us, our initial reaction is, oh my God, this is terrible. But actually, once we calm down a bit, we think, huh, maybe it's actually terrible for them. It's fantastic for you.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point about it's really reframing the situation that actually getting fired or losing your job or not being happy at work. That could be a signal that, look, this isn't working for you and try somewhere else. And, and I think you know, the first time that happens to anybody and the first time I move jobs, you're thinking, oh, my God, it's going to be a nightmare. But actually, people are people. And, you know, as long as you're moving to a good organization, then actually it should be fairly easy to get along with those people. Um, so I think, yeah, that first move, it yeah, it, it, it may uh, seem hard, but actually it's not as bad as, as you think. And, and actually going off to of the point you were talking about messaging uh, and, and communication, is that is that what helped you to move into PR and communication? Because I saw from your CV, you had done quite a lot of work in that space.
1: Yeah, so... Uh- Basically, after university, I, I studied French at La Sorbonne for, for a bit, which was amazing. And again, actually in that course, remember, it was French uh, language, culture and civilization. And one of the things that we did, we we'd spend wonderful afternoons in the Louvre uh, looking at, at French art. And it was all about like, well, what was this artist trying to say with this Renaissance painting about that particular time? So, and actually, it was usually, you know, an artist is talking about, political events, or they're talking about, well, how, you know, especially in the Renaissance, what is man's view of God at that particular time? So it was, um, these, these are pieces of communication about a particular time. That was fascinating. And we also drank a lot of wine, which was very, very wonderful. <laughs> and um, I, You know, I really began my career working at Finsbury, which was one of the top financial PR firms yeah. in the world. So people who do financial PR we would speak to the wall street journal in the financial times um, about the company's stock performance you know so and we would speak to equity analysts and so on and so forth and again what i was really interested in that you know i basically one of the reasons why i got the job is you know i speak russian and english and french as, as you mentioned and at the time lots of russian companies were coming to ipo stock market but also, so like I had the language skills, but also I was genuinely interested actually in this whole idea of how does perception get managed? How do you discuss things in the court of public opinion? Because often the court of public opinion is, uh, is actually where battles get won or lost, uh, not, not always necessarily actually in the, in the judicial courts. Literally, I just, I, I, they didn't even have a job. I just wrote to them and I was just like, this is me. And I literally had a half an hour interview and they offered me the job. And I remember even kind of being disappointed because I thought that there was so, you know, it was like it was such a prestigious firm. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go through this really hard interview process. And I kind of braced myself. <laughs> well, actually, it was a nice half an hour chat. And they were like, yeah, yeah, you're perfect. Like, would you like to come work with us? I was just like, oh, really? Sure, yes, please. That was a really interesting introduction to the world of business, because obviously in academia, you're kind of doing all this theoretical stuff, but in the world of business, I actually got to put all of that to use. And, you know, to be honest, Harsha, those skills that I learned about public relations um, and communications, they're the core skills that I use in my job today. And if you look at any founder, any CEO, they have to be good communicators and they have to be good salespeople. You're always selling something to somebody. It doesn't necessarily have to be in exchange for money, but you, know, you have to convince your team that your vision is the right one. Because as I said, it's a tight labor market. So good people don't have to work with you. Good people could go somewhere else. So you're always essentially selling something. And so kind of that sales and communication skill um, that I learned at the beginning of my career is definitely the top skill I use today.
0: I totally agree with that, Sophia. And, you know, starting this podcast and the YouTube channel, you, know, you, you can create content, but if you can't go out and market yourself, and I'm not saying to do this in an unpleasant manner, but I think if you can show people that there is value in what you produce, it's almost like running a, a startup or like a mini media company you have the production element you know, but you're kindly coming on and helping me put my content together and then you get obviously the podcast the video and that's the content production piece but then you, you have to go out and you know use social media to get your message out I, I did fully appreciate how important marketing and messaging was you know when you're trying to get people to subscribe you're always talking about your content um, and, and just saying look, this might interest you. Um, there might be some value in this. It's very difficult to sell something which doesn't add value. So I think if you concentrate on producing good content, you know, like you do with um, your, your courses and, and the podcast, then you'll always find an audience. It, may, it might take time. The production and the marketing piece really have to go hand in hand together.
1: So, you know, I heard a business coach recently talk about marketing and she was saying, well, marketing, it has this, so some people think of it as sleazy. And you know what? Some people are really sleazy salespeople and sleazy marketers and they lie. And there is definitely that. But it's kind of like the human condition. You know, there are people who lie. Like that is a thing. Marketers haven't invented it. <laughs> That's been around before, before marketing ever existed. Essentially, good marketing is helping people for free. For example, in my business, I work with some of the largest corporates going through digital transformation. I also teach at some leading business schools, and then people can sign up to my membership and courses online at Techies. On Tech you know, people have to pay for them. So obviously corporates pay me, or you know, if somebody wants to take one of the courses, they pay me a lot London Business School, pays me. But there is also the Techies Tech podcast, and it's free. As you know, as a podcaster, it takes you time, it takes you effort. In order for it to be good, you have to sit down you have to think you have to research you know you don't just kind of get on that so there's all this free stuff that I do partially it is a marketing effort you know I am a business person I want to grow my business yes I do so partially what I say to people you know if you're interested in the topic of how to succeed in this digital economy that we're in and you don't have a technical background listen to the podcast see what you learn from it if it resonates with you then get in touch and see how we can work together. Um, So obviously it is, you know, partially marketing. But also what am I actually doing that I'm educating people for free? Now, as you know, in marketing, there is a marketing funnel, which means that most people who listen to your stuff for free or subscribe to your newsletter for free don't become your subscribers. They don't give you money like that. It's just maths. That's how it works. And yet we still do it. So why are we doing it? Yes, it's marketing, but also it's helping people for free. And this is, you know, the fact that I have corporate clients who pay me quite well means that actually I can help people for free because, you know, our courses, they're they're premium courses. They're taught at some of the world's top business schools. Like, they're not a cheap ticket. And I do understand that not everybody... afford that like i I wasn't born yesterday but for those people that actually can learn quite a lot with the free stuff that i do i really want kind of you know people who are thinking about marketing and they're thinking oh well what is good marketing or marketing makes me feel sleazy if you think of it as marketing is doing whatever you can to help people for free actually i think it takes the sleaze out of it because it is genuinely helpful but also you know do it to your capacity so do it in a way that you personally can handle you know don't don't skip uh paying your bills in order to do free stuff like take care of yourself take care of your business and then in your left capacity do what you can to help people free
0: i oh, no, to no, t- t- totally agree with that and actually talking about chicago you obviously did a mba there and, and that's mm-hmm. one of the top uh, business schools in 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 the world but obviously that's a massive investment and and I think on one of your podcasts you talk about it being yeah you know, well over hundred and fifty thousand dollars so huge investment. 180 108, my god it's it, inflation <laughs> it's getting worse
1: and worse <laughs> yeah so when i first arrived at the university of chicago at undergrad i i ended up uh, getting a scholarship to do a year abroad at the university of chicago when i was at undergrad to study political science you know the university of chicago is one of the top institutions in the world's where barack obama was teaching before he went into politics has the largest number of nobel prize winners in the us and the thing is in order for me to keep my scholarship up i actually you know needed to carry on getting good grades so like the pressure was on and and i remember thinking Oh my God, I have found my people. For people who know the University of Chicago, you will know that it is a very weird, nerdy place. It is like geek extreme. Fine, I kind of like, when I got there, I was like, I have come home. Like, these are, these are my people. And I just decided that I'm going to go back here and do a master's. And actually, I didn't know what I was going to do a master's in because when I was at university, I was thinking that I might be a war journalist. So... <laughs> because you've studying politics. And, um, and so I was thinking, well, is it gonna be the law school? Is it gonna be a school of divinity? Like, what is it gonna be? And then when I got into the business world, I realized that like, oh, I would like to make some money. And, and so I thought, okay, so Chicago Booth it is. And so literally when I applied to business school, Chicago Booth was the only place I applied to. And I got in and uh, ended up doing my MBA there. And as you say, It is a huge financial expense. I mean, I'm very happy that I did it. I got a lot out of it, but that's because I took a lot of action to get a lot out of it. What I've seen happen when people get disappointed is when people assume that, you know, you get the Chicago Booth or Stanford or Harvard stamp, and then essentially people just throw gold at you. And like, that's it. And like, you're going to have this perfectly smooth, great career pathway. everybody loves you and you just get paid a lot and there you go like you're sorted and that's not true it is not true of any school like there is no golden ticket like this is not charlie's chocolate factory <laughs> so you still have to you know apply for things and get rejected and deal with that in my case i run a business so i'm not applying for jobs but i am applying for things you know i apply to speaker conferences i pitch to clients Some people just say no and like when when you really think like at least like give me a reason but some people don't even give you a reason and you know that sucks but this is what happened and so what you do is you know you go have a cookie or a glass of wine or preferably both and you get over it and you write the next email and you do the next pitch and you do the next thing when the good things about going to a top business school is that You do have this kind of credibility, and doors get opened more easily. That is true, but you've got to knock on the door first. (laughs) Like that's the thing. Yes, if you if you knock on the door, it is more likely to be opened, so you're more likely to get the interview. But first of all, you still have to apply. Then you have to actually turn up to the interview. You have to be really ready, and you're probably competing against other people with the same credentials. And so inevitably, you have to work really hard and. I've used the network. As as you mentioned, I joined the University of Chicago Alumni Board. You know, I had to apply for that. I had to be interviewed. There was a selection process. I had to tell them what I, you know, what I was planning to do on the board. And, you know, they took took their sweet time and then (laughs) eventually they said yes. But also now on the board, I actually do things like I don't just turn up to board meetings and just sit there, but I actually lead initiatives. You know, I... I make changes, I, I, well, I don't make changes, I lobby for changes at a university, you never make changes by yourself. And yes, as a board member, I get lots of, I get to meet lots of interesting people, but again, it's because I'm making the effort to do this. It's like, I think the way I would say top tier MBA is, it's like, it's a tool in your toolbox. And, and, you know, other tools in your toolbox are good communication skills. Other tools are going to be, you know, networking. I would also argue that understanding the basic concepts of innovation and technology, that's another tool in your toolbox. A top tier MBA, you know, it's probably like more like one of those Black & Decker drills. It's not like a little screwdriver, but it's still a tool in your toolbox and you still have to use the tool. It's not a winning lottery ticket.
0: No, I just love that point because I think yeah, some people do think, okay, I'm going to get this amazing uh, B-School uh, you know, MBA and that's going to basically unlock this golden path for me. And I, but, but I think, as you're saying, you have to go out, you have to apply, you have to hustle. Um, and, and I think, in a way, that process is, is important because I think sometimes if you go for jobs where it's too easy, you end up staying in places where you, it's not really the right fit so sometimes actually doing the research and really figuring out what are my skills, what are my strengths, uh, what are my values. Does that align with the job I'm going to go into or the company? Because uh, otherwise, you know, if the fit isn't there, then it just doesn't work out. So I think those are those are great points. So sort of moving on to tech. Um, I I came into tech you know relatively recently, and uh, as I mentioned before, the podcast came out of the work I did you know designing an app. So how did you become interested in tech, um, Sophia? And tell us a little bit about
1: So When I was doing my MBA at Chicago Booth, I actually, I remember I wrote in my application essay that my plan was to come up with an idea for a business, get a team and raise some money during my MBA, and then leave business school with this company. I didn't actually expect it to happen. Um, I thought it would be nice if it happened. I didn't expect it to happen. But you know what? It did happen. I don't want to say, oh, it was a miracle. Like, no, I worked in order to convince people to join my team. I tested the idea. Like I had to do, you know, a lot of ego busting work to to raise money. But, you know, I somehow, somehow I did it. And um, I essentially, me and the team, we came up with an idea for a fashion tech company. So what we were seeing is that lots of women were taking photos and sending them to their friends or to their partners or to their mom saying, I'm in Zara, shall I buy this? Or I need to have a date tonight. You know, which one of these three outfits shall I wear? And we're like, okay, but your friends usually lie or like your mom lies or, you know, people just want to be nice, even if you look terrible or they don't know what they're talking about. So what about we kind of create this opportunity for people to ask professional stylists questions? Um, So instead of sending to your mom, you'll send it to a professional stylist and a professional stylist will answer you within five minutes. And so essentially, we created this platform where, as a consumer, you could sign up to a subscription and get professional feedback from a stylist literally within minutes. And it really worked for the stylist because most stylists are freelancers. And so actually, in between clients, a lot of them have time. This was, this is working. You know, we were, we were as you said, we were app of the day on Mashable. Uh, Grazia said that we were one of the top fashion tech startups. Also, what, when do women take these photos? When When do we want to know? When do we want to look really good? It's when we're going for a fancy work thing, so maybe a job interview or a date or a party. Retailers were also really interested in this, and we realized actually we have a lot of data. So we started selling data to retailers on consumer behavior. So where are women going? When are they most likely to spend money? What occasions drive the most spend? What word are they using? Why are they not buying? Because essentially we were... We were right there with the, with the woman at the point of decision, which is actually like very few technologies are there. You can see what's coming. When the pandemic hit, literally, like nobody was taking photos and sending it to service because nobody needed feedback on what to wear. Nobody needed advice um, on fashion because everybody was basically at home in their leggings with a bottle of wine, watching Netflix and thinking that the world was going to end. So our use case on the user side completely dried up. And our retailers, either they were going bust and going out of business, or they were afraid of going out of business. But also, even the ones that actually had good cash balances, they were saying, we don't really need your insight on in consumer behavior because we know what they're doing, because legally they have to sit at home. <laughs> so thank you, but this is not relevant. So all of a sudden, a business that was actually, you know, quite promising, just and I was thinking, my God, I'm so smart, I've got I've got this diversified revenue on the user side and the business side. And literally, just very quickly, it just was like, no, this is not a thing anymore. But I I ended up being very lucky because when I was building this tech business, you know, I'm not a technical founder. I had no knowledge of technology. But to answer your question, like why this interest in tech is, it's where the world is going. Whatever you want to do, I mean, with some exceptions, you know, if you want to be a masseuse, Maybe you don't need to know about it. Like maybe if you want to be a masseuse or a chef, like maybe there are a few professions that are kind of exempt, basically professions where you really work with your hands. But I would say most professions actually understanding the basic concept of what do developers do? What is the function of design in technology? What is a product metric and what is a business metric? Because like, for example, Instagram measures time in app. Time in app doesn't tell you about how much money they make. because You know, Wikipedia also measures time on site. Wikipedia doesn't make money. Well, in comparison, Instagram makes a fortune. So that's, I've just given an example. That's a product metric. But business metrics are through profit or revenue. I honestly believe that you cannot be a successful professional unless you understand these concepts, unless you understand things like product metrics, um, unless you understand what what do back-end developers do. You don't have to do it yourself. You don't have to code Yourself, but essentially, I knew that if I was going to do something entrepreneurial, it would have to involve tech because that's where the world's going. As a non-technical founder, I didn't know what I was supposed to actually know about tech. Like, how do how deep do you go? And you know, there are all these coding courses and all of this mantra that you must learn to code. So I thought, I've got 180,000 worth of debt, and now I'm going to also learn to code. Like, do I have to? So I signed up to this online course from Stanford on Computer Science 101. And I remember, like, we were actually shown how to take apart a hard drive. And I was thinking, I don't want to take apart a hard drive. Like, (laughs) first of all, I have a manicure. But secondly, I don't see my life and career going in that direction. Like, I respect people who do that, but I'm not one of them. And I was thinking, what I need to do is I need to lead a team. I need to lead developers. I need to set them tasks. But also, I'm not going to micromanage them. I'm not going to look at their code and say, oh, look, I made a mistake. And as a non-technical person, normally when you're supervising people, you kind of know what they're doing. But as a non-technical leader in a tech-enabled business, you essentially have to learn different skills. You have to learn how to hire people who do things you don't know how to do and how to set them the right tasks. And so essentially, I, I, I had a column in Forbes where I was writing about my journey as a, as a founder. And I started writing about what I had learned as a non-technical founder. And those articles in force, did much better than all my other articles. And then I actually saw that there's this real interest, essentially of people like me, people like you, Harsha, people who are smart, people who have professional backgrounds. You know, we, we know about business, we kind of know what we're doing. Like, I didn't mention, but before business school basically, between Finsbury and Business School, I worked in a private equity firm. So, you know, that's to get a job in private equity, you have to, you know, have some brains. <laughs> you also have to work very hard. And so I was feeling quite kind of confident on the business side. But when it came to technology, I felt like i just discovered fire, honestly. And um, and I realized that actually there are quite a lot of smart people who are so alienated by the language of tech that they don't know anything about it. And then they end up taking coding courses and then not understanding what on earth Python is. Even if they learn it, they're like, I've learned it. I don't know what it is and what it does. But,
0: but I, I think um, that's a, the really interesting point, Sophia, this whole idea of, okay, especially I think with tech now, it's about coming up with solutions to problems. So I think if you see a problem out there and figure out how you can uh, provide a solution and then put the sort of the tech on top of that, but I think, you know, you need creativity, you need people to come up with ideas. And I love the way you were thinking about, okay, you've got all these stylists who are effectively running around between jobs and they have, you know, with NT. And then effectively, you're, you're using that time, you're monetizing that by saying, okay, do you want to come and work for my company? And I suppose it's the same with Uber. You've got you know, people with cars, how can you monetize that? Or Airbnb, So it's always thinking, okay, there are these um, problems, how do you try and solve it? And you don't have to be a technical person, but you have to have an appreciation for what these guys are doing. And I suppose the key thing, if you're a non-technical person, is to have a good CTO who you can get on with and speak English to rather than technical jargonese. Is that broadly correct? Well, you
1: know, to be honest, I would say no. Uh, I having I think having a good CTO is lovely when that happens. Right. But it's a bit like, uh, and, you know, a lot of people make this mistake because, again, this, this is the mantra coming out of Silicon Valley, but it, but it is an old mantra. The reason, uh, I mean, first of all, Silicon Valley is dominated by engineers. So, of course, they're going to tell you that, you know, engineers are the most important thing. But, like, they're not objective, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they're basically saying you can't do anything without us. We're the most important people. Worship us and pay loads of money because without us, you are nothing. I mean, come on. But I would say a good CTO relationship is very much like what we would want to have in our ideal partner. So, yes, I'm a single woman. I would love to have a wonderful, supportive relationship. I would love to have a wonderful, supportive husband who supports me in my career but also makes me laugh. Like that one, that would be, you know, because also very hot. Um, I would love that to happen. But I'm not just going to sit there and put off my entire life before that's happened. Like, I'm not going to do that. I'm still going to go and do things. I'm going to run my company. I'm going to have friends. I'm going to enjoy myself. Even when this thing happens, fantastic. But, you know, I'm not going to sit there and put my plans up. And what I see happen, a lot of non technical founders, But also find that innovators, you know, corporate innovators, they think that, well, I can't do anything until a tech person comes and saves me. And it's like, you're not sleeping beauty. Get up. Come on. (laughs) Um, There's actually quite a lot that you can do. And the thing is, it is very much like once you start showing traction, good people come and find you. You can do quite a lot with no-code tools. You can do, you know, essentially, what is a business? A business is always a solution to somebody's problem. There's quite a lot you can do, even in the early stages, even without technology, to solve that problem. But also, what I see a lot of innovation departments do well, you know, not not all, but the ones that do it well, uh, and also non-technical founders, hire a really good product studio because essentially... You know the technology. Most of the technology that is being built for companies that are, you know, that are app companies, tech-enabled businesses, that you, that was cutting-edge technology 15 years ago, but actually is pretty run-of-the-mill. So, like right now, you can just hire a really good product studio, where you will have a technical lead, a couple of you know, developers back on the front end, and 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 a designer, and essentially you can be the person who uh, who. Basically, sets the tasks, and you can be the person who essentially translates what they're doing into a marketable, sellable product. And in general, what happens once it starts working, CTOs get really interested because they're like, Hang on a second, I want to be part of that. It's a bit like, When you're already really happy and enjoying yourself, like that's when the hot people want to date you, not when you're sitting there being like, oh, my God, like I'm so lonely. Like if you're sitting there being like, I'm you, nobody's going to be interested.
0: (laughs) No, I think that's really interesting because um, have you come across Figma, Sophia, that design tool? Uh,
1: Not Figma, but I've, I've come across lots of, you know, there are so many different designs. Yeah, yeah,
0: no. Um, and you know, when I was you know, starting to try and figure out what I wanted my app to look like, but then I got onto Figma and tried to you know, put some things together. And it's interesting that you know, I have no, obviously, coding background, but I think with these sort of things, you can put the screens together and then put it in a, a pre- preview mode, and then you can share it with people. You can get feedback, you can test it out, you know, sometimes people get so fixated on, okay, it's got to be perfect, it's got to be right, it's got to be downloadable, whatever. But actually you can test out a lot of things on a very low or zero cost basis
1: you know, actually, since so prototyping tools are super useful, but actually the most recent innovation in prototyping is a company called Bubble. So literally you can create an app that already works that actually has code in it, oh, wow. literally using Bubble. So Bubble is kind of like the Squarespace or Wix, but for apps, it's not sustainable if you want to go big and you want to scale. Like at some point you're going to have to hire your own developers. But essentially if you're sitting there and you've got an idea, Previously, you would have to use prototyping software, like envisioning it. It's really, really good. And that's as far as you would get. And then you would show your idea to people and you would get feedback. Whereas now you can actually take it further. You can actually have something that stores data. You can actually have something that gets people's emails and that actually interacts, literally, like an app does. And that means that actually you can test your idea much further. Maybe you could even do a little Facebook advertising campaign. Just see, is this thing worth pursuing in a much more real environment than in the sandbox environment where typing exists? Yes, yes. And then if you're getting some success, like it's going to be pretty like, a, if it's a success, it's going to be a very small success at the beginning. But if there's some kind of smidgen of something promising, then that's when it's a much better proposition to take either to investors or you know to the CFO and say, look, We've tested this thing. It looks like it's getting some traction. Now give me a million dollars. <laughs> now And now I can hire the CTO. That conversation with the CTO is much more, you know, a conversation of equals rather than, oh, please save me because nothing I can do without you. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I I love that. It, it's that whole idea of you know you, sometimes you have these limiting beliefs about what what you can do, and actually you do have a, you know, uh, in, in terms of coming up with ideas, putting things together, and you don't want to be in a situation where effectively you can't do anything without the CTO's blessing. And I think that power dynamic, especially if you're co-founding something with somebody else, you don't want to be in a situation where you're effectively dependent on that other person, because then you're s- ceding a lot of power to that CTO, he or she, aren't you?
1: Well, exactly. And also think about it, like a business is, is there to make money um, and a business is there to solve, to solve a problem. So what I find, um, the non-technical professionals that I see, so for example, um one of the next episodes at, on the technology is going to be with the former CFO of Netflix. You know, a CFO is really important. that's, that's one of the key kind of non-technical jobs in a tech business. And the reason why I'm saying this is that look at Netflix. Netflix has really great technology. I mean, their recommendation algorithm is the reason why like we get stuck and <laughs> we just find a show and then we're like, "Oh, that's the whole weekend." Oh never mind. So like their tech is really, really great. But if all they had was really great tech, but they actually didn't have the creators, if they didn't have, you know, smart financial management that allows them to create, to pay creators, the huge sums that they pay, then they wouldn't have all of that content. And so what I find is that there is this tendency to overvalue the tech and undervalue everything else. But just imagine if, you know, the tech at Netflix was amazing, but the business management and the creativity just wasn't there. Would you care? Like, would you pay for a subscription? No, you wouldn't. Because I'm not subscribing to Netflix for the algorithm. I am subscribing to Netflix for the entire experience. And, you know, the technology is one part of it. And non, non-technical professionals, because we tend to get frightened of the tech, we're like, oh, have 50%. It's like, well, hang on. Is it a 50% contribution? In some businesses, you know, deep mind, I would argue, yes, it is. In businesses that are not deep tech, but are more tech enabled, it is not a 50% contribution.
0: No, I think that's a great point. And the whole idea of this you know, content creation, that is so valuable, you know, just creating stuff because, as you're saying, if Netflix had useless content, it, it would be of no, no value. Um, and, I, and I quite like the way they've changed their model in the sense of, they, they, everybody's now trying to have these streaming services and they probably realize, look, the content for them is going to be restricted. Therefore they've sort of flipped that they've reframed the problem and said, look, we need to create our own content, which I think is a quite clever way of doing things. And and wh- one other thing that I, I saw on one of the podcasts you did was um, this whole idea of bro culture and, you know, it, it's quite hard. You know, you're just getting talked at rather than, and, and and this is not obviously if you're a female founder, but actually if you're just a non-tech person, um, how how do you how can you sort of deal with that? Or what do you think, Sophia? The, the I whole mean, I have no
1: intention of getting on, on board with them. I think that they should get on board with me. Um, so my, look, I'm a business person and digital transformation innovation, that is very important. But at the end of the day, my job is to serve my clients and make money. So I don't care what a brilliant developer you are, you need to get paid. And it's usually me that pays you. So this is why, and you know, with, with all due respect this, this is not me disrespecting developers at all. This is me talking about programmers who, who make people feel like, well, I'm a developer, and you're just this idiot marketer, or you're just this idiot lawyer. And it's like, hang on a second. They went to Harvard Law School. I think they're not an idiot. Come on. Let's respect each other's contributions and let's respect each other's talents. This is what I'm saying. And so I, I think that this whole idea of how do you get on board with this on, on board with these people? Well, I don't want to get on board with people who don't make a step towards me. So tech non techies, I teach the concept of technology, so non-technical professionals can succeed in you know in the tech economy. But also what I always tell people is that, you know, if you're in an environment where people aren't going to be respecting the fact that you are taking a step towards them and they're not making a step towards you, then find another environment. You really don't have to be there. Also, you know, it's a confidence thing, Harsha, because like it's now it's come with some effort. Like I wasn't like this all the time. Like I remember I would go to hackathons and people would say words I didn't understand. And I was thinking like oh my God, I don't I don't know what it is. Like I remember I have somebody what's APIs. an API they were like application programming interface. I'm like that does not help me. Like really, I, I don't you've just made it worse. And I remember I was at an event it was actually an event where somebody from DeepMind was speaking. And the person from DeepMind was lovely, but it was a very kind of bro, like, bro grammar kind of environment. <laughs> Literally, every, every other word that was said, I didn't know what it was. And I was Googling tech terms, like, under the table. <laughs> but the thing is, like, when you're Googling tech jargon, it's usually explained by other engineers. So you get jargon explained by jargon. And I remember just sitting there thinking, I hope nobody speaks to me. Like, I just... <laughs> I just want to go home. <laughs> now I have the confidence to actually say, well, look, can you explain this? Because yes, you do need to know some key terms. Like that, that, is, that is, you know, now I know the key terms. Like I'm actually quite comfortable with my knowledge. But it's not just so much, it's not only the key terms that you need. Is you need to know why they matter. For example, there is a term called technical debt. Now, why does this matter? Essentially, technical debt is like when developers are writing code, it's a bit like chefs cooking in a kitchen. So imagine chefs cooking in a kitchen. Obviously, like there's stuff all over the kitchen. Like there might be some potato peel on the floor. Like there might be a broken eggshell. Like people don't, people aren't throwing it on the floor on purpose. But if you're in a busy kitchen, it's going to get messy. And so, you know, in a restaurant, you didn't, you don't want to, then come back to the same messy kitchen without tidying it up, like somebody's going to get sick in, the, in this kind of kitchen. It's the same with code. So when developers are, are writing code and they're, they're doing a the sprint, which is how developers normally work, it's a form of working, There is they basically leave a mess on the code. Now, as, as a non-techie, why do you need to know about this? What you need to know is that sometimes what developers do is they have to essentially have some some time that looks like downtime because it looks like they're not releasing features and so you know you as the as a non-technical person or as the CFO you might be like well they haven't released I haven't seen a new feature released so why are we paying them so actually if you know that like what they're doing is they are tidying up the technical debt which is basically like tidying up the kitchen you understand <coughs> that they're not just Playing video games, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and, or you know, in between video games, so up uh, technical debt. And so, the example that I've just given you is: you don't need to actually really understand like how technical debt works. You just need to know that sometimes developers are doing work that is not going to be visible to you. But if it's not done, then bad things are going to happen. So you need to make a budget in your, you basically literally need to budget time and money in order for this thing to be done. Because if it's not done, your whole system is gonna go down. So now that I've learned, you know, when I hear a term and I don't know what it is, basically I just ask, how is this going to impact business performance? Essentially, is it going to cost me, or is it going to bring more money? Like what is literally, is there a financial implication? Also, is there a user implication? If this term, does it make the user experience better? Because like, if it costs more money, but your customers are going to be served much better and customer satisfaction goes up, well, that's an investment. You wanna do that. So essentially, if you hear a tech term, just ask, how does this relate to money how does this relate to business metrics and how does this how does this relate to efficiency like does it make a process more efficient okay then then we want it presumably and does it make uh, customer satisfaction more efficient so basically efficiency business and user if you just ask those questions generally people will explain it to you because if you think about it we we as business people we're so used to our language and how we speak that to developers we are often as kind of off-putting and frightening to them as they are to us. So actually, like, the lovely developers that i worked with who are definitely not programmers, um, they're just like, my God, you've raised money. Like, how? To them, it's just like, what did you, like, are you a witch? (laughs) How did that work? And um, You're an
0: alchemist.
1: (laughs) Ask developers questions. And most, like, You know, good people will want to explain it to you, but then also say to them, you know, do you have questions about what I'm doing? Do you have questions about the business side? And I find that once you start having this conversation where both of you start asking questions, it's actually really nice because, like, you know, people open up to you about their work. You open up to them about your work. You just get much more cohesion and, you know, might even make some friends.
0: Yeah, no, that, that's great. And actually, developers are people too, apart from playing <laughs> lots of video games. They're I'm just scared. scared. <laughs> uh, actually, that's a, that's a nice sort of segue onto your sort of new business, Tech for Non-Techies.
1: Sure. So as I was saying, I was writing for Forbes about what I was learning about how to succeed as a non-technical professional in the tech world. And those articles became popular. So people asked me to give talks so I was giving talks uh, at WeWork in a various different startup hubs, and then a student from London Business School came to one of the talks and said, "Oh, this is great, but can you come and teach a longer workshop at London Business School?" So this was three years ago, and that student, Nasi, the student who came to find me, literally, he's he is my last guest on the Tech for Techies podcast because he actually took what I learned and he has literally created an online jobs platform for blue collar workers in South Africa. So he literally like took, took what he learned from me and he has now created a tech business out of it. And so this was three years ago now, but at the time tech techies wasn't, it was literally a meetup group, some articles I was writing, like teaching some workshops and courses. And it was really when the pandemic happened and I was about to teach at London business school again, but the campus got shut down. So obviously I had to put it online. And then I thought, in that case, I might as well make an online course. But that's how tech from techies became you know, much more open. It became you know, courses for non technical professionals who want to understand enough about tech to build businesses or to become successful angel investors or to lead digital transformation. And what, what's happening now, kind of the, the, the offering is large corporates, so tr- large traditional businesses that are going through digital transformation. What they find is that actually in order for digital transformation, in order for the strategy to work, they need their teams on board. And most of their teams, you know, for example, if you're an alcohol brand, so I'm working with a, very, with a really large CPG company, they are really good at CPG. Like they're good at consumer packers. This is what they do. Now they're going through digital transformation. So it doesn't mean that every single person in there needs to learn to code, but it does mean that actually now they're working with, say, app delivery companies, it means that they're getting consumer insight from AI companies. They need to understand, if somebody gives them a consumer insight report, they need to be able to understand where it comes from, to question the algorithm, to question the data, so they can be an active participant in digital transformation. On the company side, traditional businesses go through digital transformation, and on the um, on the people side, the consumer side, literally, you can go to techfromtechies.io and join our membership. And I always encourage people get your employer to pay for it because most of them are going to say yes. And you're going to be the stuff you learn with me. It's going to help you essentially do your job better and make your employer more money. So they should pay for it.
0: No, no definitely. And and don't worry, Sophia. I'll make sure all your contact details. Social media links and stuff are uh, in the show notes. Finally, this is obviously a careers podcast. Um, It it would be helpful if you could talk about maybe any of the the strategies or thoughts you have um, on either finding a job or developing in your career. A couple of thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners.
1: So first of all, this is not going to surprise anybody here. But I honestly believe that if you don't know the basic concepts of technology today, you are not going to have a successful career as you could if you do. Because even Starbucks has an app. The Starbucks app revolutionizes Starbucks business. It basically really helped their bottom line and helped their customer satisfaction. And Starbucks is a coffee company. If the fortunes of a coffee company can be so impacted by an app, we all have to know the stuff. So I do think you need to learn the basics of tech to succeed in today's economy. I also really do believe in becoming an expert, becoming a recognized expert in your field. And uh, this is something that Dory Clark talks about a lot. And I, I know, I know we're both fans of Dory Clark. I love her work. So anybody who hasn't heard of her, literally just buy her books. Like I've bought all of her books. I completely fangirl her on Twitter. I am obsessed. <laughs>
0: She, she was on a, a episode five of the podcast, so I was very lucky to get her.
1: absolutely love her latest book, The Long Game, and so she basically talks a lot about how to become a recognised expert in your field. And what she says is that being a recognised expert is not the same as fame. I do totally agree with Dory that if you want to have a professional, you know, professional, professionally successful career. Being a recognized expert, so being known as a thought leader in your field is one of the best investments that you can make. Because look at the story that I told you about Tech Techies. It was literally, it started with Forbes articles. It's those articles that got picked up that led to London Business School, that led to the creation of a company. And now this company helps thousands of people. But if I hadn't made those investments into basically what Dory Clark says that you should be doing, I don't think I would be where I am today.
0: No, I just love that. And I think that whole idea of content creation, just getting your stuff out there and then hopefully seeing who will connect with it. It's been such fun chatting with you and talking about tech. And I, I found out about this bubble thing as well, which yeah, I, that's a complete result for me. But I you know, really appreciate your time today, Sophia. And thanks for uh, joining us from fr- France. Would you like to give a shout out to anybody before we uh, finish
1: you know, I would actually like to thank the people whose books I've been reading and who have really helped me because I have so many mentors. You know, some many of whom I've never met, and I really get so much from from books and from podcasts. So I'd like to thank Dory Clark. So thank you, Dory. Uh, also, I'm obsessed with Rachel Rogers. She's a business coach. Uh, she's got a book called We Should All Be Millionaires. Let's do it. Let's exactly. all be millionaires. Why not? So I'm going to pick uh, Dory Clark and Rachel Rogers.
0: Very good. <laughs> well, Sophia. Th- thank you so much uh, for your time and uh, have a lovely weekend and enjoy France. And I hope when you're back in London, we have a chance to actually
1: catch up again. That would be such a pleasure. Thank you. Have a great weekend.
0: Thanks Sophia. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening and staying to the end. That was such an enjoyable interview. If you would like to listen to more episodes then please consider subscribing to the podcast, which is available on your favorite providers and subscription is free. If you wish to learn more about any of the resources mentioned in this episode, please take a look at the show notes, which are available online. Thanks once again for listening. Stay safe and look after yourself. I hope you will join me again in the future.